Hi, I'm Rose, and my pronouns are she and her. And I'm Annie, and my pronouns are she and her as well. And we're here to provide some context about the bisexual experience by sharing stories, getting advice, and talking to queer people we like. Yes. Um, today, we are joined by Dr. Mimi. Um, Dr. Mimi, do you want to give a little introduction to who you are and the work that you do? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. So I am primarily a clinical psychologist and I work at Loyola Marymount University in the student psychological services. And so I provide a psychotherapy uh, consultation um, and uh, you know, other outreach to our students. Um, on the side, I also teach adjunctively at Antioch University, Los Angeles. Um, and I am also a consultant and trainer and speaker on all things queer um, and also just culture. So gender, sexuality, and race. Um, outside of that, I do a lot of community work as well. So I do wear a lot of hats, um, but I have been um, organizing uh, groups, uh, LGBTQ, leading them, advising them, um, and specifically the bi plus, uh, bisexual, pansexual, uh, queer and fluid. Uh, communities uh, in the Los Angeles area. So those are sort of the main hats that I wear as a professional bisexual. <laughs> just a few hats. Yes, yes. So just a few. Hats. Yes. <laughs> it's like you must have an exclusive hat closet for all of those hats. It's very impressive. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, Dr. Mimi, Mental health is a pretty hot topic on this show. It, it comes up a lot. We're constantly talking about how bisexuals are kind of a demographic that, that really needs to be aware of mental health risks and situation um, of, of just existing as a bisexual. I'm curious, what, what made you want to study psychology? What made you get your start as a psychologist? Was there a particular person or event that, that prompted you to study it? Well, I think I've just always wanted to understand how people tick, you know, what makes them tick. Um, I was always very introspective in that way um, and thinking about, well, you know, why does this person feel this or do this? And so I just always had that inquisitive mind. Um, and then also growing up, my friends would always tell me I was a good listener. And uh, so I figured that doing something that you know, involved human behavior, involved listening uh, and helping people uh, would be great for me. Um, and I was always interested in social issues too. You know, I saw the pain and the suffering in this world. And I wanted to help make the world a better place. And I figured that becoming a psychologist, I could help do that one person at a time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, starting with one person that could then help other people, right? Um, I think also growing up, I also always felt a little bit different from other people. 
not just in terms of my bisexuality, but also culturally. I am ethnically Chinese and Vietnamese, and my family and I were refugees from Vietnam after the Vietnam War. And so, you know, we came to the U.S. and had to learn new language, new culture, everything. And so I always felt a little bit like I was an outsider. Um, and that also made me sort of curious about the world and also very aware of my own identity. Um, as someone who's Asian American, um, a woman as well. Um, and then, you know, sort of gradually as I grew up, uh, you know, my sexuality being different from the norm. So I think that all of those kind of blended in together um, and made me really interested in multicultural psychology um, specifically. So really wanting to understand identity, uh, communities, um, and the intersectionalities of all of that. I see. Wow. That's great. Very interesting. I, uh, I, I really appreciate that, that you exist even. It's, a uh, it's real. <laughs> it's a talk to a, a real bisexual psychologist. We've, we've talked about mental health so much on the show and it's, it's good to know that there are people like you out there. It's so I'm glad true. to be I, here. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Like, it's truly so wonderful. Um, I recently was switching counselors, and I was like, I just need somebody who gets being queer, and it's just such a unique experience in that. And um, on top of everything else, you know, the like there's a level of insecurity and shame you might feel from that experience of feeling like you're other or not the norm. So I think it's so, it's like so important. And particularly right now, every, I think as a globe, we're all feeling that like crush of everything that's going on, um, the pandemic. And of course, like the uprising against uh, racial inequity uh, particularly in the U.S., but globally. And I'm wondering if there's anything you think that the bisexual should be doing particularly to keep tabs on their mental health since we're already starting at a baseline where we're more susceptible to mental health issues. Yeah, I mean, those are really important questions. And, um, you know, as I've been working with my clients at LMU, and, you know, just sort of seeing how, and obviously, you know, me in this pandemic as well, uh, you know, I, I always say that whatever your baseline was uh, during this pandemic, you're going to be functioning a little bit lower. So even if you weren't depressed before, you're probably a little bit depressed now, you know, because we, we are quarantined, we're facing these, you know, really um, scary health risks. And so, you know, our, our normal lives have been taken away. Um, and so we're all experiencing that uncertainty and that loss. So, um, so, you know, if you were already a little bit depressed, then you're probably a little bit more um, than just a little bit depressed now. And so, you know, considering that the LGBTQ community as a minority, a marginalized group, we face this minority stress, right? 
um, already, right? Even just in normal life. And so now that we're in this predicament, um, you know, we're experiencing a little bit more of that. I think especially by plus folks, um, you know, there's statistics out there that hopefully people know about that we in particular face even greater health challenges um, than gay and lesbian folks. Um, and so that is something I think that not a lot of people know about, but it's important to keep an eye out on that. Also, you know, if you're an ethnic minority within, you know, so you're a minority of within a minority um, and you, you might be experiencing racial trauma, right? Um, Anti-Black, anti-Asian, there's a lot of anti-Asian sentiment right now, um, anti-immigrant, right? So all of that can really um, add up. And I think some of the things that, you know, because I think some people ask, well, why is it different for an LGBTQ person in the quarantine right now? And I think what makes some of us, you know, have specific challenges is that because we're all sheltering in place, some of us have had to move back home with families. And um, especially some of the LMU students that I work with. And so if your family is not very affirming of you, you know, your LGBTQ identity, um, that can be really difficult, right? So you're living at home and you might be just experiencing you know, microaggressions within your own family, um, or maybe you're partially out, you know, maybe you're out to a certain part of the family, but not out to another part of the family. So that can also be tricky. Um, even if you're not living with your family, but let's say you're living with a partner, uh, you know, as bi plus folks, we may have a monosexual partner right? Someone who's gay or straight. And so that can also present some challenges um, being bi plus. And so your partner may also be microaggressing towards you um, or even abusive, you know, because bi plus folks, we are also at higher risk of intimate partner violence. Um, and so that's something I think can be, uh, you know, a, a special issue, especially if you're cohabitating. So you're living with them um, and you're around each other 24-7. Um, and so it's sort of this pressure cooker effect um, that can happen. So, you know, and outside of, you know, all of that too, I think we uh, do have different, you know, health disparities around substance use, depression, anxiety, um, health insurance coverage, even, um, you know, uh, unemployment, so, you know, it can be just really hard when you're, you're not well, you have health or mental health issues, and maybe you can't see a doctor, or you have to pay out of pocket. Um, and then, you know, there's risks in terms of going to see your doctor right now and going to a clinic, right? Um, some people are scared to do that. Um, and then even if you do go see your doctor, your provider may or may not be LGBTQ affirming you know, to add on top of all of that. So, you know, I think that that can be, you know, really difficult for us folks. Yeah, absolutely. I, that was I, many hats of what makes it difficult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> difficult 10 times over. I, yeah. I wanted to ask a follow-up question actually, 
Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that often bisexual people have, you know, are, are predisposed to domestic violence and to mental health issues. I wanted to ask if, if someone is listening to this and thinking, okay, yeah, but I was, I was feeling kind of down before the pandemic and now I'm feeling much worse. When is, when is the point when a person needs to start seeing a mental health professional or, or, or really should start thinking about doing that? Yeah, you know, it, it's, I think, good to be aware of how you're functioning. You know, I think that sometimes it's good to look at whether or not you can function daily. Uh, you know, can you concentrate? Can you do your work? Um, are you finding yourself being really preoccupied and forgetting things um, and not being able to even manage sort of simple tasks? Mm. Um, those are usually some signs and symptoms. Um, also, if it's really starting to affect your relationships. So, you know, if it's getting in the way of, you know, just being able to have good communication, um, if your partner or partners or friends or family members are all noticing like, hey, you're really not doing well, or you seem really different, or, um, you know, I'm having trouble connecting with you these days. Uh, those would all be, I think, some good indicators. I see. Wow. Okay. Good, good to know. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to know, you know, how you're feeling until someone else points out some changes in your behavior. So that's a very good point. Um, I also wanted to ask, you mentioned people maybe going back home and living with family members who are not affirming of their identity. You mentioned LGBT affirming therapy uh, in your work a lot. What is LGBT affirming therapy? Yeah, so as therapists, um, you know, we sometimes get training uh, you know, it depends on what kind of program we went to and also our own particular, you know, interests um, in terms of pursuing different classes, continuing education around different specialty, you know, topics. And, a, you know, a therapist might say, well, I'm LGBT friendly. Um, you know, I, I generally am okay with LGBTQ people. I'll be open to working with them as a therapist. And I, you know, promise I won't say, you know, homophobic slurs, right? Okay. But it's a little bit different than actually being LGBTQ affirmative, right. where you're actually um, getting educated, you're, you know, the terms, um, you're aware of the different ways that homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, all of that could be affecting your client's life. Um, and you're actually trying to help uplift the person. You know, you're aware of these issues of power and privilege. Um, I kind of liken it to being non-racist versus being anti-racist, right. right? Since we're all talking a lot about that. So if you're just friendly, then you're just saying I'm not racist. But if you're affirmative, then you're actually going to help work on changing things and actually maybe advocating for your client. You may have to make some phone calls, write some letters, 
um, on behalf of your client um, to help them in some important way. So, um, so that's the difference. And um, I want, you know, one of the hats I mentioned is being a faculty member at Antioch University. And one of the courses I teach there is bioaffirmative psychotherapy. So, um, you know, it's an eight hour course. I work with the students who are getting their master's in clinical psych. Um, and, you know, I teach them all about the terms and issues of biphobia, bi erasure. Um, we watch movies, we discuss things. Um, and so, you know, they're really getting some good training on that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of people might not know um, and they might find a therapist that they think is bi-affirmative, but actually isn't. Right. Um, and in fact, uh, a third of uh, bi men and women actually don't tell their sexual orientation to their providers. Mm. Um, that's a lot. That's yes. a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, when I, uh, as a part of the Los Angeles Bi Task Force, that's one of the organizations that I co-founded, we did a needs assessment uh, for the Bi Plus community in Los Angeles. And we asked folks how they're doing, you know, how they're identifying and um, what sort of how connected they feel to the community and whether or not they're out to providers And we also found very similar statistics uh, that only about 70% of them were telling their therapists uh, their sexual orientation. So, you know, there's a a good chunk there that for whatever reason wasn't feeling comfortable or the topic didn't come up. Um, And so to me, I think that's a problem um, that really needs to be addressed. Yep. Uh, it's so funny you mentioned that. I don't think I've ever told the therapist my sexual orientation. <laughs> I'm part of the problem. Uh, well, I would say I've certainly told a therapist and then felt like I had to do a lot of education around it. So, uh, you know, you, you disclose something and you're hoping it's going to feel like safe and affirmative and like warm and instead, you're kind of going into fielding questions mode and education mode. And in therapy, that's certainly not a role I want to be taking on. Yeah. And, you know, Annie, I, I wouldn't feel too bad about that, <laughs> that you, you hadn't told your therapist. I really place the responsibility on the therapist. Um, you know, I would ask sort of what what happened in that first couple sessions that it didn't come up, Mm. you know, like even just filling out the forms in the beginning when you're putting your demographics, right. Your relationship status, your gender identity, all of that, like that should be there. Right. Um, And I really make it a routine thing that I ask on the, at the first session, um, what the client's sexual orientation is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I put that on your, on your therapist's, Um, and then, yeah, Rose, what you mentioned about having sort of some reactions where maybe the therapist didn't seem too super knowledgeable, um, that, you know, feels really awkward and that's a burden. Um, you you shouldn't have to educate your therapist on these things, right? I think a lot of people feel the same way that they either didn't know when to bring it up or, or just 
it didn't come up or if it came up and, you know, client did tell the therapist that there was some kind of uh, lukewarm or even like a negative reaction. Sometimes it can be actually um, very judgmental right? Um, from the, from the therapist, which, you know, really puts more harm on that client. Um, and it's really supposed to be a safe space. Right. Exactly. You know, for you. So, you know, that's why it's part of what I do as a consultant is to train other mental health professionals so that, you know, bi plus clients don't keep running to, into these situations. Right. Yeah, that's that's much appreciated. I think the reason I never brought it up was because I was scared of a negative reaction. And, you know, when I'm going to therapy, I'm going because I really need to go. And I don't, I don't want it to become a place that I dread going. I mean, I, I kind of do dread going already. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I don't want it to be a place where I I feel like I can't even exist in the way that I want to exist there. It's uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that there is an effort to educate therapists because that would certainly make going uh, a little less intimidating for me. Yeah, agreed. I'm, I feel like there's so much of this like unknown when you're looking for a therapist. So it's great to even just have a term of like LGBT affirming is something I'm looking for and something I should be asking in my initial um, meetings and just see, you know, what, how a therapist responds is going to give you a good pulse on like their understanding. Um, and I feel like there's so, so much around mental health that like we're, we're all aware. And especially right now with the pandemic, we're encouraged to check in on each other. I'm wondering if you have any tips for people to check in on, I like for non-queer people to check in on their, um, queer friends and family and then how we can help each other people who have different identities so people who may be experiencing like racial trauma right now um how we can best reach out and support each other if you have any advice you don't have to have all the answers (laughs) (laughs) well I think just even the fact that people would check in on um a friend who is from a marginalized group I think that's already Uh, I think a really great gesture. Um, It shows that you're thinking about them. It shows that you're willing to, you know, listen. Um, And I think listening is just really important, Um, you know, regardless of sort of what that person's going through, whether it's racial issues, you know, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera. Um, Just being able to, you know, be empathic and compassionate uh, towards that person's experience, right? Even if it's very different from your own or maybe very similar uh, to your own experience. I think listening and being empathic, I think is really great. Um, I know that a lot of people are reading uh, more right now and um, you know, trying to educate themselves. And so I think that you know, now's a great time to, to research those things. You know, I find myself reading a lot, you know, watching, um, different films, um, that I think, you know, maybe I wouldn't have necessarily tried to, 
uh, watch or look into before. So I think, you know, now's a really great time for everyone to educate themselves. Yeah, definitely. I also wanted to ask um, for, for someone who has maybe started considering going to therapy for the first time, uh, what should, especially a bisexual person, what should they be looking for in a therapist? Um, or, or what should they expect going to therapy for the first time? Mm, great question. You know, I, I think even just the search itself, uh, people sort of don't really know um, what they're supposed to do or what their rights are even. And, um, you know, I always encourage people to actually look for someone who is by affirmative. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can look for that through like the therapist website, right? Hopefully they have some information on their background, their training, their specialty areas. Um, so if, you know, it mentions, you know, LGBTQ, that's great. If it mentions bisexuality in particular, that's even better Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, again, you could be gay affirming, but you might not necessarily be super bi affirming, right? Right. Um, There's gay lesbian folks who have biphobia. Um, And so you can definitely search for that and think of also about what your therapist preferences are. You know, you might gel with particular therapists more than others. You might have a preference in terms of gender, age, you know, culture, um, someone who's maybe a little bit more direct and straightforward or someone who has a softer touch. You know, we all have these kinds of different styles. So you can, um, what I say is actually ask for a free 15 Hey, sorry, the audio cut out for a few seconds here, but what Dr. Mimi says is that you can ask for a free 15-minute consultation. can do that. I didn't know and that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and that's so important because, you know, it's such a personal experience. You're going to be bearing your, your heart, your soul, and you don't want to just work with the first person you meet, right? You, it's therapist shopping, as we call it. And so ask, ask when you call them or when you email them, if they'd be willing to do that free 15 minute consult. And most therapists should, you know, be willing to do that. And then when you're there and, you know, you've maybe met with them or maybe picked your therapist, I would say, be clear about your goals. You know, I think sometimes, um, we don't really know what we need or what we want. And then therapy becomes sort of fuzzy. Um, and the therapist might also assume um, that, you know, you actually want to work on something else than what you actually want to work on, mm-hmm. you know, because especially around bisexuality, sometimes you're not really there because of your bisexuality, but the therapist might think, that, oh, these life problems you have are because you're bi. Right. When actually maybe you're really clear on that, you're no longer exploring, you're no longer coming out. Um, Maybe you're there because you're, you know, thinking about career direction, Right. you know? Um, And so you want to make sure 
that uh, the therapist and you have this understanding of what you're working on. So those are some some things that I uh, recommend people do. Um, Also right now, I think a lot of people might not know that some health insurance companies are providing credits uh, for COVID, um, you know, because therapy can be expensive. And if you don't have insurance, that can be really tough. Um, Though some agencies and therapists do provide sliding scale and you can definitely ask. Right. So, again, these are your rights. You can ask for that. Um, But, yeah, some insurance companies are actually reimbursing um, clients. So in some ways, therapy might be free or discounted, Mm -hmm. which I think, you know, is great news for everyone. Right. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So those are some some general recommendations. Um, And then I guess just another note, too, about diversity and and seeking mental health. I think um, some communities are not necessarily as savvy about these things. Um, You know, I grew up in my family and, you know, mental health was never talked about. And, um, you know, in a lot of Asian American communities, um, other communities of color, it's super taboo. Um, you know, it's a sign of like weakness, um, or, you know, people blame it on like a spiritual or religious kind of flaw, uh, rather than it being like a health condition. So I think that sometimes, um, you know, we're also, you know, facing that. And, um, so sometimes you need to educate, you educate your family, um, or people around you or yourself, that, you know, it's okay to talk to a therapist. It doesn't mean that you're crazy. Um, you know, a lot of normal everyday people see therapists about, you know, a lot of normal everyday things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that's an important message to put out there too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, the, I, so I just, I am like two sessions in with a new therapist and it was such a, an interesting experience for me going in. Cause like, I think those questions when you're first meeting someone are so important and so valuable. Like, thank you so much for sharing those with people <laughs> because I've certainly gone in and just been like, here's every trauma I can never remember. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I feel like I came out not knowing your style at all. Um, so one of the things that my therapist asked me was who's your, who's your like 1am phone call when you are freaking out, if we're going to like dig into stuff, who's your person. So I thought it was really interesting to have somebody call out that like need for community and need for support from somebody who would understand. And I know that that's something you've done a lot of work on to build a bi plus community. Um, so I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about the importance of that and your experience building those communities. Yeah, I think that's a great question your therapist asked. Um, it's a great way to word it. I always say, who's your phone call from jail? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I grew up just, again, really kind of starting from scratch and no guidance, you know, and I also grew up in the 
late eighties, early nineties, where, you know, the internet wasn't really around. Mm -hmm. Uh, we had to still learn things by checking out books at the library. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so I just had no clue, um, about just sexualities outside of being straight, um, except for the sort of slurs that I would hear or that, you know, random characters in movies and things like that. So, Mm It was really hard for me to figure out my identity. You know, I didn't hear the B word until college. Wow. Um, and so I think that is what kind of sparked, you know, my interest and in, in passion in creating communities. I did eventually find a mentor at my university. Um, they had an LGBT mentoring program. Wow. It was really amazing. Wow. And yeah, I was uh, connected with a grad student um, who was bi and Latina. So also, you know, came from an immigrant uh, family and community. Mm-hmm. And it was so extremely helpful for me to be able to see somebody who was a little older than me, who, you know, had figured things out and was just really so understanding who I could really relate to. Um, so actually it wasn't until after I graduated, but our, uh, LGBT student center said, Hey, we don't have a bi group. Would you be interested in co-leading one? And so I said, okay. Um, and it was because there was just so few out by students in the you know late nineties. And so there I was, you know, I was like a recent graduate but I stuck around and I co-led this group. We called it Fluid. Um, this was at UCLA. And, uh, and so through that, I was able to really kind of pay it forward and help other students who were struggling, didn't even know what questions to ask, you know, to figure themselves out, weren't aware of, you know, the terms and things like that. So, um, so that was kind of what started my um, leadership um, in the community. And then later when I was uh, in grad school and, um, uh, you know, there was the Binet LA group in the Los Angeles area, but it disbanded, um, you know, because that's also one of the challenges of bi groups is being able to sustain, Mm -hmm. you know, back then, again, this was before uh, chat rooms and social media and that kind of a thing. So, Um, After I graduated, I just felt like, you know, I live in L.A. and we're such a big city. You know, it's so uh, diverse. It's so progressive. Like we have to have some kind of a bi community here. So I put out an email and I said, you know, who here is interested in like a once a month kind of meeting at a coffee shop? Because, again, this is all sort of in person um, and so that's what started AMBI, um, a meeting of bi individuals, which is what it stood for at the time. Um, we liked the sort of ambiguous uh, AMBI, ambidextrous, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of a, a terminology. Um, and so I helped to lead that group for a few years. And uh, it's now, you know, I'm no longer at the leadership and um, it's now on meetup.com. Um, and we have grown so much, uh, in the LA area, just even LA is three, over 3000 members. Wow. 
Um, and now it's expanded to other cities, other states, and I believe other countries. Um, yeah, so it's it's really, you know, we kind of found that perfect kind of mix uh, in terms of uh, the structure. So I think that's what helped the, the groups thrive and grow. Um, so that was 2006 that I started AMBI. And then in 2008, I... Um, was a part of uh, this other group that wanted to start a nonprofit um, for the for the Bi LA community, and so we started the Los Angeles Bi Task Force, and um, and so that helps to promote education, uh, advocacy, cultural enrichment, and we've put on a lot of different panels, workshops, a lot of Bi One Hundred One uh, type things. Um, and we also hosted a Bi Arts Fest uh, for many years um, on September 23rd, which is Bi Visibility Day. Um, and you know, through that, I was able to really collaborate. We were able to, um, you know, meet other organizations and provide education. Um, and I was also able to go to the White House um, in 2013. Uh, to the very first White House Bisexual Community Roundtable. So, um, yeah, just through these different organizations, I think, um, you know, I've just found different ways to um, advocate for the community. That's great. Do you have any advice for for someone who's maybe thinking about starting a bi-organization of their own? Yes. It's, uh, you know, I had to sort of learn through trial and error. (laughs) Uh, One thing that I learned is that you can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you always got to get some help because it's really easy to burn out if you're just one person kind of running the whole show and you're trying to organize and send emails and do the website and this and that. So I always say, try to get a team of leaders. Um, And I would say to, you know, not try to do everything within your organization. So that's another thing that I had learned um, from running AMBI was, you know, we did try to do everything. Mm -hmm. We had social events. We had activist events. We were marching in LA Pride and doing panels and going to conferences. And I think that can also be a lot. So, um, you know, that's why AMB became a social group and the LA by task force became the education and activist group. So that is another tip um, that I have. So yeah, creating sort of a very clear mission um, and goal and, you know, finding help think that's really great and you know I think nowadays with social media it's just a lot easier um, than it was before where we actually had to have printed flyers and you know walk around to local coffee shops or you know we would sort of try to find like venues where we thought the bisexuals were gathering (laughs) Um, so yeah it's just so much easier now with social media yeah, I'm sure. That's great. Oh, I, it's weird to not be able to see Annie because I can't see 
uh, if she's about to speak. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Next time I'll, fi- I'll get my camera fixed. No, no, no. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. Um, I, I was just thinking how you were, you were saying, um, a lot of it is by trial and error. And I think that's like so true of so much, but is there anything in your work that has surprised you either like pleasantly or unpleasantly that you think would surprise other people? Yeah, I've learned a lot of things uh, over the years. It's been (laughs) over 20 years at this point. And, uh, you know, I I think that originally there was still just a lot of lack of awareness. Um, You know, this was like late 90s, early 2000s. And, um, you know, just kind of hearing things or even just hearing directly from different gay and lesbian activists. Uh, that, you know, who just were so negative towards bi folks, um, you know, in discussion groups, for example. Mm. So, you know, there would be like a women's group and it would be mostly lesbian women and then, you know, a couple bi women. Um, And as soon as the bi women mentioned anything about an ex-boyfriend or a boyfriend, Um, There would just be these glares and hostility and kind of like, why are you in this group? Um, And they're like, well, it's a women's group, right? I I thought I could be a part of it. So, um, you know, those things I think I would hear a lot about. And then I think also when we were trying to create some annual events um, at, you know, these centers, there would be assumptions that, well, why do you need a bi-specific event? Like, don't the gay events kind of help cover everything? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would hear that. Um, And so I'd have to sort of take a deep breath and say, well, actually, (laughs) no. (laughs) Um, You know, it is its own identity and community. And a lot of bi folks don't necessarily feel completely safe or comfortable in gay spaces. Um, And what if, you know, say you have an other sex partner, you know, I think that sometimes the gay events and programs support the bi person when they're in a same sex relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. So for example, like, um, you know, domestic violence services, right. So you could go to the LGBT center uh, for those DV services, if you have, you know, a same-sex partner, but what if you break up with them and then now you have a partner who's of another gender? Mm-hmm. So now what? You know, do you still go to that program even though you have this relationship with that worker or that program? Um, or now do you have to go to a different one? Right. And so there's those types of things that I think gay folks kind of take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think after we were really being loud and proud in our community with Ambi and marching in pride parades, um, I would hear through the grapevine that, uh, some of the staff at these, you know, LGBT programs who were identifying as gay and lesbian were now coming out as bi. Interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was always really, you know, it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think, again, it just kind of reflects how 
you know, by folks sort of feel not safe to be fully authentic or honest um, with other people, you know, about their, their identities. Um, so I think, you know, those are some um, kind of striking things. And, um, you know, I think nowadays, uh, sort of, as I've seen things change and evolve and, and improve for the most part, even though we still have work to do, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that people are coming out, you know, younger, uh, you know, instead of coming out in like their 40s and 50s, you know, people are coming out in their teens. You know, I have LMU students who tell me that, oh, they've been out since they were, you know, 14. Right. And um, I wish they already. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they already have a group of queer friends. Um, and so I think that, you know, generationally think things are different. There's a lot more exposure. Right. You can just Google or look up YouTube. Um, and so I think that young people are coming out younger, but I think sometimes there's a bit of a risk with that because if you're still living at home and your parents, you know, are not supportive, then you're going to hit up against that. Right. And, you know, there is a possibility of some, you know, serious consequences sometimes, you know, being disowned or abused and that kind of thing. So, um, so yeah, so I think there's just sort of like a difference in the, in the generation. Um, whereas before, like for me, I was already out of the house. I was, you know, living on my own. Um, and so I didn't necessarily have that, but I'd already sort of lived, you know, identifying as straight for a little while. Um, and so then, you know, I had to do the coming out, you know, in my adulthood. So it's just, you know, I think some, some trade-offs there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned, um, being in LGBT spaces or, or the women's group even where it's kind of a recursive cycle where you're saying like people were mentioning boyfriends and then the lesbians in the group were, you know, rolling their eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. That just, that just means that the people who aren't speaking up and who aren't rolling their eyes, who are maybe later coming out as bisexual or pansexual or queer are getting the messaging that, uh, don't do that. Don't ever come out as anything other than lesbian. So it's, it's great to hear that that cycle breaks when you're marching and becoming more visible because those people shouldn't have to stay in the closet. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's, that's also what has driven me to be so out and loud. (laughs) I call myself like a bi beacon in a way um, so that I can, um, you know, kind of sound the signal for all of those people that might be, you know, still struggling. Um, and, you know, I'm actually hearing, you know, the, the positive results of that, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, just helps make it all worth it. Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, I, I, it's so true. Like people being out and vocal, especially now that we do have online platforms where, I mean, like Annie and I have no qualifications besides the fact that we both identify as bi. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Annie's also a podcaster, but uh, like that, that ability to reach people makes such a difference for me coming out. I was like, Oh, I have like this little, like 
by corner of Instagram that gets me. And I feel that I have some in jokes there and kind of made me more comfortable to then come out to other people in my life. So I just, I think it's so valuable and I have to thank you so much for being so vocal on your platforms and being the bi beacon. It means so much to people. <laughs> I try. <laughs> <laughs> the bi beacon. I like that. It sounds like a bisexual newspaper. The bi beacon. <laughs> mm, I'd read that. It's a pretty good scene. I yeah. would read that too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Rose, do you have any other questions? Um. I think that you had wanted to ask about bisexual identity congruence, but I don't know if oh, you still want to, because I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, I actually don't know what it means to, I was reading some of Dr. Mooney's work and I didn't know what it mean or didn't know what it meant. So I, I actually wanted to ask what is bisexual identity congruence? Yes. Well, I appreciate you digging into my research articles <laughs> and all that. I know sometimes it can be pretty technical. Um, so I'll probably geek out a little bit here in some of the sort of science and research part of things. But so I see sexuality as not one dimensional, right? And I think we can probably all agree that it's not just like one thing. It's not just your behavior, right? And that's why Fritz Klein created the sexual orientation grid, the KSOG, um, which hopefully you all know about. Um, but, you know, he saw sexuality as seven different dimensions, um, your sexual attraction, your emotional attraction, your sexual behavior, your fantasies, um, your social affiliations, your um, lifestyle, and your identification, right? And so there's all these different dimensions and sometimes the dimensions don't always match, okay? So who you like may not match who you're sleeping with or who you're dating um, or who you're hanging out with socially um, and what you call yourself, right? And so all of this, you know, and, and a lot of those sexuality researchers are also seeing this. Um, now, I took it a little bit further in terms of my study when I was in grad school, this was over 10 years ago, but I felt like there was something about possibly looking at the congruence of these dimensions. So how much does all of this match up? And it, it's basically like congruence theory, which I don't know if you've heard of, but um, it's a psychological kind of phenomenon where people seek to have congruence between their feelings, their thoughts, and their actions, right? We want to be in line, you know? So if we say that uh, we're on a diet, for example, but then we're eating a bunch of Oreo cookies, right? So then we're, we're not matching our behavior with our thoughts and our feelings. And what that does is it creates cognitive dissonance, you know, which is usually an uncomfortable thing. So I basically use that. Um, to look at uh, people's sexual identities um, and to see sort of what was healthy. Um, and I think, um, you know, a lot of people might also say that uh, your behavior is sort of how you define your, your label, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. if you're currently sleeping uh, with a same-sex partner, you should call yourself gay. If you're currently having an other gender partner, you should call yourself straight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I disagree with that. I actually think that you know, there needs to be more match in all of the dimensions, mm-hmm. um, and especially attraction. Right. That's the dimension that I feel is actually the most defining part of who we are. Um, And if you look at all the, you know, sort of current definitions, Robin Oaks's definition, Mm -hmm. right? It's the potential to be romantically or sexually attracted to more than one gender. So her her definition is about attraction. You know, it's about attraction, right? So Mm -hmm. um, my dissertation without going too much into all the sort of nuts and bolts of that looked at by identity congruence and then two other variables internalized by phobia mm-hmm. um, which is that internalized shame you know feeling like you're bad um, you know there's something wrong with you because you're bi right so that's internalized by phobia and then infidelity Mm-hmm. So I wanted to see if there was a correlation between those three variables. Right. Um, and I was actually inspired after reading Tipping the Velvet, um, which is a novel. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a great little novel about this young gal who, uh, this is like in the late 1800s, who falls in love with a woman. Um, but at that time, I was hearing a lot of shame from lesbian women. Right. Um, just saying, oh, you know, bi women are cheaters, bi women are going to leave me for a man. And so I was just kind of, you know, like aware of all that biphobia. And then when I was reading that book, um, so in the story, the main character, Nan, she falls in love with this woman and then they're like discovered. Their relationship is discovered and it's super like a bad thing back then, right? And so then the girlfriend ends up fleeing and the next thing Nan finds out, that girlfriend is now with a man. Hmm. And so I thought, oh, that, you know, is really interesting there that in the situation, that girlfriend who was like behaviorally bisexual right? She was with Nan and then she's with a man. Um, that maybe there was some like internalized shame, right? And maybe there was also some incongruence around her identity. Right. And so it isn't that the cheating was because of this girlfriend being bi, but because of the shame and the lack of maybe clarity around her identity. And so that's why I, you know, created this study And I actually did find significant results. I found that the participants in my study, and I looked at um, women, so these are all women in my study, um, that the women with higher bi identity congruence had lower internalized biphobia. Okay. Okay, so that means sort of the more aligned their identities were, the less of this bi shame they have. Right. Which I think makes sense. Right. Like if you if you feel, you know, okay and accepting and and proud of who you are, then you're probably going to live your life in a way that's more congruent. You know, you're going to be just matched, more matched in terms of who you're dating, 
how you're, you know, representing yourself, um, the communities that you associate with and all of that. So, so that's, you know, why I started, um, you know, I sort of coining this term by identity congruence. Um, and that I, I do try to apply that in the work that I do. Um, I did start a uh, self-empowerment series called Buy on Life a few years ago. And I do um, some activities and, and worksheets around that. I, I try to help participants really define more clearly what their sexual identities are um, and learn how to come out to folks and, you know, some of the challenges around coming out um, and build resiliency around that. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's by identity congruence. Identity congruence. Buy on life is a fantastic title for something first of all <laughs> thank <laughs> you I can't believe we didn't think of that pun yet for one of our episodes I can't um, promise we won't have an episode called buy online someday. <laughs> okay we'll, we'll link <laughs> great um, yes and we do love puns that's one stereotype that's true yeah it's, it's so true, true. <laughs> it's true uh and we love a book recommendation, Tipping the Velvet. I'll definitely put that on my uh, to-read list. I don't have anything else to ask. This was like so informative and so helpful. And I just can't say thank you enough for being here with us. Um, but Annie, I don't want to cut you off if you have anything else. No, I, I think that was all the questions I had as well. Definitely. And Dr. Mimi... Where can people follow you or find you on social media or any of the uh, organizations that, any of the many organizations that you started? <laughs> Which yes. we will link to in the show notes. Yeah, we'll also awesome. Link. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I am on Facebook and Instagram and um, my handle is at Dr. Mimi Huang, all one word. Um, I have also, usually I try to plug my different orgs through those pages, but you can also go to my general website, uh, com, and I do have a resource list of all those different orgs, as well as mental health uh, links as well. So um, yeah, if people want to find out more, upcoming events and things like that, that's all listed there. Wonderful. Great. And Dr. Mimi, we also uh, have a sign off on this show that we try to do every week and fail to it's do it. It's a little every silly. Week. Oh, we, okay. uh, do you need me to participate? If you don't, if you're mind. comfortable. <laughs> okay. We, what we try to do is we try to say goodbye from the goodbyes at the same time. Now, on Zoom, it does not work. <laughs> oh, okay. So we can I'll try it. Yeah, I'll give us a countdown. We'll try our best. <laughs> I I will fix it in the editing process if okay. it uh, doesn't allow. <laughs> okay, so goodbye from the goodbyes on three. Ready? One, two, three. Goodbye. Goodbye from the, the goodbyes.
This podcast is based exclusively on the real-life experiences of two bisexual cis women and their internet research. Sexual identity is deeply personal and influenced by intersecting identities, demographics, and circumstances. Rose and Annie do not speak for the bisexual experience of all individuals or the bisexual experience as a whole. In short, they don't know shit. Thanks for listening. Wow, 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 wow,